Lord Jesus, you said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That my Father, you said, who is greater than all, that no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand, and that you are both equally God. I and the Father are one. We thank you, our Father, that because of a completed work, not a partial payment, but a full payment, where you were satisfied, propitiated through the blood of your Son, where he can shout, it is finished, it is paid in full, that it is not us who hold on to you, but you who hold on to us. Thank you for the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. We know a day will come when many think they are Christians, and your son will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. You said there are many who profess to know Christ, but by their lifestyle, they deny him. We know our salvation is rooted in the cross alone, but it is fruited through a changed life. And so we come as your humble servants today who call you, Lord, and ask that you'd use the word. I pray for the many families that are watching in different parts of our country, that dads would take the leadership and help their children to learn the scripture, and help us here as we open your word to have open hearts that are soft and pliable, that you might have freedom to shape us and to mold us. Father, without you, I can do nothing, but by your spirit, all things are possible. So, Spirit of God, I ask that you'd fill me and help me and anoint me and use me. And again tonight, at meet the pastor as our friends and guests come, that Christ in every respect would be honored and adored and glorified, and we ask it in his name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, some weeks ago we finished a New Testament letter the epistle of James, and typically I do a New Testament, then an Old Testament letter, but we've been in between books of the Bible, and I've been addressing a number of topics. Two weeks from today, I'll begin a brand new book of the Bible, the Old Testament. Next Sunday, you don't want to miss. If you have friends and family in town, bring them. Now, they may not come to church, but you just tell them it's our custom to go to church on Sunday morning, and if you want to stay, you're welcome. Have lunch ready when we come back, but we're, we're going to church, and we'd love for you to come with us. So uh, you want to be here next week if you can, even if you're live streaming somewhere in the world. I know a lot of our families are leaving, but a lot of our families are bringing in additional family. Right now, this morning, the topic is helping the discouraged. Now, there are 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament. There are four signed gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, the gift of healing, and the gift of miracles. But there are 16 non-signed gifts, and one of those spiritual gifts is called the gift of encouragement or the gift of exhortation. And it's interesting, whether it's a sign gift or a speaking gift or a serving gift, whatever classification with those 16 non-signed gifts, there's parallel commands in the New Testament for you and I to carry out that responsibility. So, for instance, you may not have the gift of mercy, but you are called to show mercy. You may not have the gift of serving. You're called to be a servant. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you are called to do the work of an evangelist. You may not have the gift of hospitality, but you're, to call, you're called to show hospitality. In fact, that's a requirement for an elder in the local assembly, among others. And you may not have the gift of encouragement, 
but you're called to show encouragement. In fact, God says this in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're living in days where many people are deeply discouraged. And especially the writer of the Hebrew says we need to gather and stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we approach the end of the age because things are not going to get better. They're going to get far worse. And once the church is removed and the restraining influence of the Spirit of God is gone, this world will be different like it's never, ever been before. So here we are in the book of Acts, and as you study the book of Acts, it's an incredible record of the first 30 years of church history. And I believe that the need of the 21st century church is not something new, but something old, that we need to go back to our roots and to see how the church functioned and how God blessed it and why He blessed it. And unless you're just hard and callous to the things of God, you can't help but study the book of Acts and be encouraged. And of course, uh, they did so very much, or so very little, such that in the words of their critics, in Acts 17, it says they turn the world upside down. Now, I hope you brought a Bible to church. If you have a Bible, raise it up high where I can see it. All right, fantastic. I see a few electronic guys out there. You need to get a paper copy. Now, look, I was one of the very first testers of an electronic Bible, so I'm not just some old-fashioned guy. And I use an electronic Bible every week, but there's nothing like a paper copy. You will grow more as you have a chance to write things down, circle things, put things in the margin, than if you just have that little handheld computer, all right? So Acts chapter 4, and we want to begin reading in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. You know, one of the most encouraging dimensions of Bible study is you soon see that it is filled with the lives of men and women that God used in a powerful way. And one of the reasons the Spirit of God records the lifestyles of so many of His people is because He loves to teach us through real-life examples. And one such person is Barnabas. Barnabas had the gift of encouragement. And so one of the functions of different gifts is we learn from them. So when someone comes and they have the gift of, say, serving, they spur us on, even though that may not be our spiritual gift, to be servant-like. And if someone has the gift of encouragement, they spur us on to encourage others. And Barnabas was certainly a great man. He was a Levite. He was from the island of Cyprus. And uh, his original name, his given name was Joseph, but the apostles renamed him Barnabas. And when we look at men like Barnabas, our tendency is to think that they were raised in a different world, they were different kinds of people, that they were cut out of a different bolt of cloth. But nothing could be further from the truth. These are real people. They're not cardboard Christians. They're not fakes. They're not phonies. But they are people that God can use. 
And throughout the Acts, Barnabas is mentioned, and so this morning I'm going to pull together a number of the Barnabas passages. And one of the reasons we will see that God could use Barnabas to encourage others is because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and full of faith. He was an encouraging man. You couldn't leave his presence without being encouraged. And so there are five marks about this son of encouragement that I want us to study today, five brand marks that I hope the Holy Spirit will put deeper into your life and into mine. There is a note-taking outline there in your bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, you can print it out. First, I want you to notice that Barnabas was a burden bearer. Barnabas was a burden bearer. Look, if you will, at Acts 4 in verse 32. It's a rather controversial verse, but it's an important verse, especially in light of what is happening in America and what is now seeping into <clears throat> evangelicalism. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common. You see that word common? Most of you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the word koinonia. It's the word that's translated fellowship. And so fellowship is not like marbles hitting together, but it's like grapes being squished together. And so there was a sharing together, and their property was koinos, koinonia, so to speak. All things were common property to them. Now, let me just make a parenthetical note, because this text, especially in the last couple of years, is being abused. And as Christians, we need to be alert, because we have many people in our nation who want to move us into socialism. And some evangelicals think that that is God's way of doing things. But let me share with you several reasons why that cannot be true. First of all, what was done among these church members was not state-controlled like socialism, but it was church-initiated. It was initiated by the body, the members of the body. Second, when the text says here that they everything they owned was common property, these were heartfelt kind of decisions they make. These weren't forced on them, these were voluntary. You come to my house, look, you need anything, you can use it. My food's your food, anything I have, it's yours. And of course, the Bible does not teach that property is equally owned. It is canceled right in the early chapters of Scripture and of course in the Decalogue. The seventh commandment said, you shall not steal. There's an assumption there that you can own something. It's not stealing if you own it equally. You shall not covet. There's an assumption that someone else owns it. Third, I might just note that what took place here in the early church did not happen by some revolution, but it happened through the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. And fourth, I want you to notice that their goods were shared with one another. They were not evenly distributed. They're distributed to each, the text says, as any had need. Again, this is not socialism or communism because socialism is not koinonia. Socialism says, what is yours is mine, so I'll take it. Koinonia says, what is mine is yours, so I'm willing to share it. And if you know the book of Acts, you know that an emergency situation had happened in this particular year. The church had just been born. And of course, of those seven Old Testament feasts, each of them pictured some aspect of the work of the Messiah, either concerning the first coming or his second coming. And one of the Old Testament feasts, of course, was the Feast of Weeks. And on the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost in Greek, 
Uh, And so on the 50th day, the Holy Spirit of God came. And Jews, of course, to this day, because they don't recognize most Jews that Jesus is Messiah, they still celebrate Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks in the 50th day. But on this day, 120 individuals came out of an upper room, and they began to speak languages they had never learned before, real languages, not the gibberish that goes on today in some Christian circles or by Hindus. We're talking about real known languages. That's what they were speaking. And on that day, as Peter stood up and preached from this miracle, 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, he preaches again, and the number is 5,000, excluding men and women. So conservatively speaking, there are at least 25,000 believers. Now, remember, if you're a pious Jew, Deuteronomy 16, 16 said, three times a year, you came to the place where God said his name, namely Jerusalem, to the temple. And so this was one of those three times. So the city would swell, Josephus says, from 100,000 to nearly 2 million for some feasts. The city is absolutely packed. But this feast was different from what had been celebrated for millennia. On this particular day, God's Spirit came, and what was pictured in 1400 B.C. by Moses Some 1,400 years later, I say millennia, it's a millennia and a half, uh, the Spirit of God comes and fulfills that Old Testament feast, and no one wants to leave. This is what we've been looking for our whole lives, the coming of the Messiah, where He would come and He would forgive our sin. He would be pierced through for our iniquity. He would be declared to be Lord through the resurrection from the dead, showing that death could not hold Him in the grave, that He is the only viable substitute who can die for you. And just as he promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he would place the Spirit of God in you, that they might all know him from the mightiest to the least of them. So nobody wants to leave. They want to learn from these apostles who had lived the last three years of their life with the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. So what happens? Well, they were coming for a short period of time, but now they're here for a long period of time. And their resources begin to dry up. So what happens? Well, some of these completed Jews who called Jerusalem home, they had property, they had means, they had houses, which they could accommodate the people of God. And let me just say parenthetically here, because this is a good opportunity to maybe think about how a local assembly should help people who are in genuine need. The Bible says we should do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, this is a unique situation, what took place in Acts, but the epistles will later unfold for us how people who are truly needy should be cared for. For instance, the New Testament makes a distinction between a widow and a widow indeed. A widow indeed, first point there, if you'll bring it up on the chart, a widow indeed is someone who is unable on her own to supply the need that she has. And of course, the Scripture is clear that if you have the means to provide, then you should do and use those means. That's why Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, neither should he eat. He doesn't say if someone cannot work, but someone who is unwilling to work, and there's a huge difference. God makes it also very clear that if a needy person has a family member who should help, that that's where they should go first. I've had people over the years, and I'll say, well, don't you have a 
a son or a daughter based on your age who could come along, yeah, but it's too embarrassing for me to go and ask them for help. Well, God has given them the responsibility to help you. And so if someone does not care for his own, and actually it looks upward, children or grandchildren caring for parents or grandparents, they're worse than an unbeliever. And so the church shouldn't help if there's someone in the family that is equipped to help them. In addition, the Scripture teaches that if a needy believer is to be helped in the local assembly, they should give some return, 1 Timothy 5.5. So we're not talking about someone who is basically a leech who comes in the church and all they want is money and they show up every time they have a need. Now, we're talking about members of the local assembly who care, who serve, who conduct themselves in an honorable way, which brings me to the next point. If the person is truly needy, they should have a good testimony. Paul is very clear in that same chapter that if someone doesn't have a good testimony, you shouldn't take care of them. I've had people over the years come and I'll say, well, you know, I hate it that you can't pay the electric bill, but this woman that you're with... Is she your wife? Well, no, you know, we just kind of live together. So what you're asking me to do is to take God's people's money, hard-earned, sweat, blood, tithe money, and to underwrite your adultery. Are we clear on this? And I said, I'm not going to do it. Now, look, if there's children involved, I'm never going to let some child go hungry. But you need to look at a person's testimony That's very, very important. In addition, the Scripture is clear that if the person is truly needy, you're helping to address basic necessities, not a new Cadillac, but some of the basic necessities of life. And so the text says here that not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And their example reminds me of a very important truth, that everything they owned was at the disposal of God Almighty. Now, you don't really, in the truest sense, own anything, not if you're a believer. The world is the Lord's and all that it contains. That means everything you own, God owns, but you're just a steward. But as God's steward, is the resources that he's put in your hand available for his work. Now, Luke, the human author of the book of Acts, tells us that this was done by many people, but he isolates one particular individual named Barnabas. Why mention Barnabas? and not someone else. Well, I take it that Barnabas obviously led by example, and so he was a great encouragement, and many followed his example. Look at verse 36. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Bar, son of Barnabas, by the apostle, which translated means son of encouragement. So we know his given name was Joseph, but the uh, apostles nicknamed him son of encouragement. We know that he was from the tribe of Levi. And if you know the law, the book of Numbers specifies that a Levite could not own property in the land of Israel. That did not mean that they were prohibited from owning property outside of Israel. And of course, he's from Cyprus. That did not mean that his wife could not own property. Maybe she had property that she inherited from her family. God doesn't spell out the logistics, but we do know that on this particular day that Barnabas came, who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And by the way, this gift was not given in some flamboyant, showy kind of way. Don't say, hey, everybody, listen up. I'm going to give a special gift, and I want you to know how great I am. You know, we've had this piece of property for years, and we've sold it, and we're here to take care of you. Now, he does it in a quiet kind of fashion. 
There's no attachment to the money. Hey, brothers, if I give this money, I want to make sure that the Barnabas Memorial Auditorium has you know, my name on it. And millions of dollars are raised that way across America. But contrary to the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who didn't have to, of course, give the whole amount, well, they lied about it. Barnabas, nonetheless, brought all the money, and it's a representative truth that everything he owned was God's, that it was in God's hand. Now, again, while he mentions his birth name, he highlights his nickname because his nickname means son of encouragement. In other words, when the apostles saw this guy, they thought, he's such a blessing. He's such an encouragement to be around. You say, well, what is so significant of calling him the son of encouragement? Well, among other things, the word encouragement is the Greek word paraklesis. And if you remember, that's one of the titles given for God the Holy Spirit. He's not called the parakeet. He's not a bird. He's called the paraklesis, klesis. And it's translated in some of your English texts as encourager or comforter. He's the one who, who comes alongside and he comforts us, he encourages us. Same word that's used here. In fact, when God describes himself, the Father, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, he calls himself the God of all comfort. Same word that's used. So people would say, there goes Barnabas, the son of encouragement. What a blessing he is to be around. And every individual can become like a Barnabas, maybe not on the same level with the gift of encouragement, but we should be encouraging people. And if you think about it, there are folks in the church, you see them coming, you say, oh boy, I can't wait to talk to him. And then other folks come and you say, oh no, you know. There's some who just really build you up and some who just seem to be a constant drain. They're consumed with themselves. But Barnabas was not that way. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're here today and you're discouraged, you don't have to be. Only the truth of God renewing the way you think is going to help you. And if you're characterized as a discouraged person, either A, you've never been born again, or B, you've been born again, but you've never really grown much. Because God doesn't want you to be beat down by discouragement. And sometimes because you are groaning, you are being used, when you're discouraged, it just means the devil's on your trail. Because he recognizes that when you are discouraged, you're consumed with yourself, your effectiveness is greatly diminished, you're not thinking about those around you, you're only thinking about yourself. So here comes Barnabas, he sells the land, he brings the sale proceeds to the apostles. What was he doing? He saw a need and he was trying to lift a burden. That's why I say he's a burden bearer. Of course, in the letter, to the Galatians, the Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You say, well, Pastor Carl, I don't have any property to sell. I'm not a wealthy person. You can still lift a burden. Maybe you have wisdom to give and you could share it. Maybe you're just a good listener. You know, there are people who just need sometimes someone to listen to them, to unload because no one else will. Wouldn't it be neat if, if we had more of an other perspective, but so many come to the church and they say, feed me, bless me, give me, minister to me. They're not really thinking about others. But when the Spirit of Christ is controlling your life, when you are filled with the Spirit, you will be filled with encouragement. And that's why they called him the son of encouragement. Not only was he a burden bearer, secondly, I want you to notice 
that Barnabas was a friend finder. Barnabas was a friend finder. Fast forward a few pages to the book of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Turn there, if you will, Acts 9. And the chapter opens in verse 1 with the conversion of the apostle Paul. We are told now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Hey, don't ever forget that Paul was not a nice guy towards Christians before he was converted. He was against them. He tortured them. He imprisoned them. He was involved in putting them to death. He was like a one-man army who had tasted blood and he couldn't get enough. And he thought in the process he was serving God. So don't forget what he was like before he was saved. He becomes a trophy of the grace of God. We read further that he went to the high priest, and notice verse 2, and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's en route to Damascus. Damascus, of course, is one of the oldest cities in the world. It's a very important city because it's not only the place where the Apostle Paul is converted, but it's also important prophetically because God says that this city is going to be totally destroyed and uninhabitable. It's never happened in its 5,000-plus year history. But it's going to happen, and the Bible says it will happen before the return of Jesus from heaven, before the second coming. So if we see it happen before the rapture, again, when you see the Christmas decorations go up in Walmart around Halloween, you know Thanksgiving is near because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see God fulfilling prophecy for the second coming as we are witnessing, we know that the second coming is that much closer. So he goes to Damascus, and again, he's going there to deal with these believing Jews. They are belonging, notice this text says, to the way. That was one of the earliest titles given to Christians. They weren't called Christians. They were called belonging to the way after Christ's assertion that I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not until several years later they're called Christians. And so God informs this brother Ananias of Saul's conversion. Look down at verse 10 after his conversion is described. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias proceeds to give God Almighty, the omniscient God, a little bit of information. He said, "Uh, Lord, excuse me. You know Saul of Tarsus, he hates the saints of God, I'm one of your saints. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? You know, you go to God in prayer and you start informing God of something he, do- he already knows. We're a lot like that. Look at verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And Lord, I'm one of those saints. I'm one of those people who call on your name. But notice how God assures Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And so Ananias comes, 
He lays hands on Paul. Paul was in darkness for three days, had a lot of time for a personal reflection. And we're told immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So Saul takes off preaching the gospel. And he basically says, I was wrong. Jesus indeed is Lord. And verse 22 tells us, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Now, why did they want to kill Saul? Because he was a turncoat. They viewed him as a traitor. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. They're just waiting for him to slide outside of the city, and they're going to get him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So this once proud Pharisee who comes to Damascus to storm the city, he escapes in a large basket. And of course, his former friends and colleagues, they now want to murder him. Look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem... He was trying to associate with the disciples, with believers, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. I mean, you can see what's happening here. Oh, we can see this guy's phony ploy. He's just trying to get on the inside. He's trying to find out who are those followers of the way so that he can knock us off like he did towards Stephen. No way we're not taking him in. So here's Saul. He's in no man's land. The Christians don't trust him, and his Jewish brethren who are not converted, they want to murder him. The church is suspicious. I mean, they can't really believe that he is a genuine disciple. He was not just somewhat neutral. He was a hater of believers. But, verse 27, look at your text, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord in the road, and he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. I want to tell you, there was never a more hated, friendless, lonely individual at this point than Saul of Tarsus. No one really wanted him. But there's this spirit-filled brother by the name of Barnabas, who's so filled with the love of the Lord Jesus, he cares for him. And Barnabas is not so much concerned about his reputation, what others in the church of Jerusalem think about him. He is concerned about his responsibility as a believer. He could care less what people thought. He was interested in what God thought. And sadly, there are a lot of Christians today who are just obsessed with themselves, how great they are. And they're not really obsessed with other people and caring for them. They're not like Barnabas by any stretch. And as soon as you get wrapped up and involved in yourself, it will always shred your concern for other people. Oh, you may come to this church, but you'll be on the peripheral edge. You won't really be involved serving and caring for God's people. And sadly, there's a lot of people like that today, even those who are, quote-unquote, trying to win people to Christ. They don't really care about the lost and the perishing. They go out on one of the evangelical muggings, and they try to share the gospel with someone just to put another notch on their belt. 
but they don't care about lost people and where they're going to spend in eternity. They're really superficial people. But what does Barnabas do? Well, he's a friend finder. He cares for someone that so many seem not to trust or to hate. He needed a friend, and so Barnabas comes and he befriends him. And let me just say this, there's a lot of new believers and new members in our church fellowship, and they need someone who will befriend them. I've been in churches, and I've witnessed it, I've watched it on Sunday morning. I'll introduce myself like I'm a church member. I was in a church in California, and they thought I was a church member. I was so friendly and just meeting people, and, and I was meeting people there for the first time. You know, and I knew it was a good church, so I wanted them to get involved. But you could see some people had their little holy huddles, and if you're a new person, you couldn't really break in. There are people who come to churches, and they feel like they're on the outside, and they say, you know, how can I stand around with those guys? And just talk about different things, about the Lord, about life, and how do I break in? And I'm grateful, you know, when people come down front on a Sunday morning when God brings us new members or new Christians that some of you will come down here and you'll personally meet those people. Maybe I introduce them as a new believer and your mind immediately goes to the discovery class. You say, hey, you know, we have this class for new believers, or, or your mind goes to your ABF that you're a part of, or your mind goes to, hey, my wife and I are going out for lunch. Could we take you today? We'd love to get to know you. And they're friend finders. They're engaged in the lives of people. And a key element in a local assembly is the process of discipleship. Discipleship is found nowhere in the New Testament, the name, the word discipleship. Now, the word disciple is, and we'll talk about that in a moment. A disciple, when the Bible says make disciples, it's talking about making converts. And so Barnabas, he recognizes that Saul's conversion is real, and he wants this new brother called of God to be an apostle, to grow and to develop. He still had to grow and develop even as a great apostle. Now, thirdly, I want you to see another reason why he is called the son of encouragement, and that is Barnabas was a bridge builder. Barnabas was a bridge builder. Turn a few pages to Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11. And let's look beginning in verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. That's the first time this ever happened. Jewish Christians are going to these different places, but who are they reaching initially? The text says Jews alone. But something for the first time is about to happen that has never happened. Now remember, sometimes within a book, God will structure the book so you can easily see the outline. And the outline to the book of Acts is unmistakable. It's Acts 1.8. Go therefore, he said, and make disciples. Go therefore, be witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts 1 through 7. It covers a period of two years. Acts 8.1, that's coming up on the screen here. That's a hinge verse in the book. And chapters 8 through 12 describe their witness in Judea and Samaria. And Luke, the master historian he is, drops these little structural time clues. It covers 13 years. And then 13 to the end of the book, it covers another 15 years. So when you study the book of Acts, it's the first 30 years of church history. 
And of course, in Acts 8, 1, you should put that out in the margin next to verse 19, because what Luke is doing here in Acts 11 is he's picking up the narrative from Acts 8, 1, where they are scattered, okay? Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They bravely stayed behind at risk of their own life. They were going to do everything that they could to protect the gains that God had made. But verse 20 here of Acts 11, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so now, for the first time, we see completed Jews deliberately sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Remember, Christ said, in essence, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, they had been doing that. God scatters them. They're still reaching Jews, but now God is changing their focus, and they're going towards Gentiles. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. That's an important phrase. You should underline it, the hand of the Lord. God was working significantly because his hand was at work in these lives. It was not their winsome personality that changed the loss. It was not some social club they were inviting people to. You can turn people into a local church through your winsomeness or maybe through the social programs you have, but the only thing that matters is when the hand of the Lord is at work, where people are genuinely being converted. And the Scripture describes here a revival, or really better, maybe an awakening. In a technical sense, revival is when God's people are stirred up, and awakening is when lost people are saved. And so there's this huge awakening where all these Gentiles are being one to the Lord. Now, remember, Jerusalem is where the church was born. That was the headquarters. That was home base. But look at verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So the apostles back in Jerusalem said, look, we hear there's a large number of Gentiles in Antioch who are coming to genuine faith, not just Jews, but primarily Gentiles. Remember, the word Gentile is a synonym in the New Testament for a pagan. When Jesus said, don't pray like the ethnoi, he's saying, don't pray like the Gentiles. Some English translations say, don't pray like the pagans. The Gentiles in the first century were idolatrous. They were sexually immoral. And of course, remember, here is an awakening that was not for the first time directed by the apostles. This is just the rank and file that is at work. By the way, that's how God does most of his work. Spoke to a pastor recently. He said, I, said I, you know, we got so many blue-collar people in my church, and I wish we had just some more educated people. I said, man, that is an awful statement you just said. Like blue-collar people can't be educated. And two, I reminded him from 1 Corinthians 1, there's not many wise, not many noble. God actually does most of his work, not through the highly intelligent and the famous. We think, oh, if we just get that athlete here, that politician who knows Jesus, you know, they'll win the world to Jesus for us. Actually not. You travel the world and you see that God does his work just through ordinary, everyday, 
rank-and-file people, so to speak. God was using ordinary people, not the apostles, to pull this thing off. Now, as you can see on this map, I want you to fix in your mind, down in the right-hand corner is the city of Jerusalem. And if you go about 300 miles north, you hit Antioch. It's about 20 miles inland off of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the first century, there are two Antiochs in the Bible, Pisidian Antioch in Asia, and then there's Syrian Antioch. And Antioch of Syria was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire, followed by Rome, of course, and Alexandria, where it was the intellectual center and the world's largest library was located there. So this is a significant city in the Roman Empire. And of course, the apostles had reason to doubt the legitimacy of the conversions in that while this particular city was known as a place of business and commerce, it was also widely known for their idol worship and their sexual immorality. And since this was not initiated by any apostle and no apostle was there to give it any guidance, they want to go there to see, is this real fire or is this just wildfire? Is this legitimate or is this illegitimate? So who do they send? They send Barnabas. By the way, he was an apostle. Most people don't know that, but he is an apostle, and Galatians identifies him as such. In either case, verse 24 says, for he was a good man. Here's the reason why they sent Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit in faith. Circle that little three-letter word, for. It's the little Greek particle, haughty. It's an important word. It's giving us the cause. It's giving us the reason. Now, some translations that tend to paraphrase a little bit just leave it out. That's why you need a modern, literal translation of the Bible. So like in the King James and the NASB, the word is for. In fact, the Net Bible translates it because, because that's what this word means in this particular context. Because, here's why we're sending Barnabas. Three reasons. Did you pick them up in the text? Number one, he was a good man. He is an agathos man. You could say he is an excellent man. Um, you, he's a man of encouragement. He is not uh, the kind of guy who's a contentious fighter. He cares about people. He's just a fine man. Second, they send him because he's full of the Holy Spirit. What does that tell you? It tells you that he's dependent on God. That just as you need air to breathe, you need the Spirit of God to fill your life if you're going to do anything worthwhile for the kingdom. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? By grace through faith. You came in a bankrupt state. You admitted there was zero you could do to earn salvation. That's the only way God will receive you, or He won't receive you at all. And you put your confidence not in what you've done, but in the finished work and the death, burial, and resurrection. Well, as you've received him, now walk in that way. In total bankruptcy, in total dependence, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And the text also says he was, and it's a shared verb, he was full of faith. What does that tell you? It tells you he was a man who knew the Scripture. Remember, the Scripture is what God uses to birth you. You're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. And the Scripture is what God uses to grow you. You say, well, how do you know he was full of the Bible? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So contextually, of course, it's not just filling your mind with information. We got a lot of people in our day who know a lot of facts. If we could just get them to apply what they know. No, it's the distinction between knowledge and what Peter calls true knowledge. 
when you obey what you know. How do I know he is obeying what I know? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit won't fill a disobedient believer. He's full of the Word. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and God is able to use him in a mighty way. Now, I want you to notice in verse um, 23 what happened when Barnabas arrives in Antioch. We're told then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. We're told of three reactions that happened when he arrives. First, when he had come, he witnessed the grace of God. He immediately concludes, my goodness, this is the real thing. These pagan, worshiping, immoral Gentiles are genuinely converted. God's hand is on this. Sometimes you can't always be sure of someone's conversion. I know I've baptized unbelievers over the years, not because I want to. I can only go by what they say. Hey, that happened. We studied it not some time ago in Acts 8. Simon of Magus, they baptized him in Samaria only to find out he was still in the bondage of iniquity. Time is the real test. A changed life. We're not talking about perfection, but we are speaking about a new direction. And if you have a direction that is passionate towards sin, like these Gentiles would have had towards sexual lust, they would have concluded, this is wildfire, but this is genuine conversion. It has all the marks. And so the text says, he rejoiced. He was excited. When God moves and God works, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll rejoice. You see, he wasn't out to just build his own kingdom. He wasn't even involved in these conversions. But he's excited because God is being glorified by these new trophies of grace. And notice the third response that's noted here. He began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. You have it. Praise the Lord. This is wonderful. Just keep walking with him. Don't be deterred. Keep serving the Lord Jesus. He just wanted to encourage these new believers to remain true to the Lord because God was moving in their midst. And God, by the way, spells this very plan out later in the epistles, like in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, describes different gifts that God gives in the church. And one of those gifts is called pastor-teacher. It's different from the gift of pastoring. It's differing from the gift of teaching. It's the gift of pastor slash teacher. And that gift, among others, is designed to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so spirit-filled leaders who know the Word of God, who have dedicated themselves to building strong local assemblies, and that's where the action is. It's in the local church. I'm thankful I was saved through a parachurch, but as I began to grow, I realized that's not where the action is. God's heartbeat is the local assembly. And as people grow, they're equipped to do the work of the ministry. And so what happens? They're growing, and look at the end of verse 24, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Hey, listen, if you are filled with the Word of God and filled with the Spirit, you will just be amazed at how God can use you. And there's a direct parallel between usability and being filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word. So here's this man, and I say he's a bridge builder, because you see over here in Jerusalem, you have what we might call traditional Christianity. Now, it's old enough to call it traditional. Uh, Remember, that's where the church was established. It was all Jewish Christians when it was born. 
But over here in Antioch, there are some Jewish believers, but it's largely non-Jews, Gentile believers in the faith. It's, uh, it's new. It's spreading like wildfire. Uh, the church uh, wasn't started here by the apostles in Antioch. It was an independent movement of people who were persecuted and were forced to leave Jerusalem and spread into this area. And, and it's real and something magnificent is happening. But it's different. It's the same in essence, but it's a new, fresh work among Gentiles. And so what does Barnabas do? He's able to take the traditional and he's able to take the new and build a bridge together. Someone came recently to the church and they said, well, I came to the service. She, she said, uh, I guess that was a traditional service. Do you have a, you know, like a modern service? I said, our services are identical. It has nothing to do with traditional. or mo It has everything to do with being biblical. I said, the sad thing is you're coming from a church where you've been undertaught. And I was just plain and real with her. I'm not going to lie to him. So, oh, yeah, well, we got this church, you know, where the pastor takes off his tie and he wears shorts and puts sunglasses on and he's super cool. No, and black lights and smoke. That's a lot of nonsense. And that's why the church is in such desperate situation. But here he is. He sees what God has done in Jerusalem. He sees what God is doing in Antioch. He knows the old so well, but he sees the new ever so plainly. He believes in the established church, but he also believes in new frontiers. And in the grace of God, he's able to mold them together. By the way, we need these kinds of people in our churches today. Do you know what's wrong in some churches? The mindset, we've never done it that way before. One of my professors in seminary who's now in heaven used to remind us there are three kinds of leaders in the church. There are risk takers, as he called them. I prefer to call them faith takers. There are caretakers, and there are undertakers. There are faith takers who are willing to believe God for something new. It's consistent with what God has revealed in Scripture, but the aspect of ministry might be brand new. And they don't have the mindset that, well, you know, we always did it this way in the Jerusalem church, so we can't do it this way over in Antioch. I remember when I first came here as the pastor, before our very first Easter together, I announced that we were going to have an Easter blitz. And people were a little concerned. I said, well, we're, we're going to go two by two, and we're going to knock on doors and invite people to church for Easter Sunday. And one lady said, isn't that just something that Jehovah's Witness and Mormons do? Well, sure they do it. They've taken the master's method and the devil's message and brought the two together. But we are called to win people to Christ. We didn't even have a building then. We, we actually met in a grass lot across the street. And you know how many people came? 36. And uh, someone said, well, what if someone asked me to share the gospel? I said, look, we're, we're just knocking on doors. I said, look, if someone falls down on their knees and says, what must I do to be saved? You should tell them. But we're just inviting people to Easter. We've never done this before. It's okay. We're going in faith. There are faith takers, and then there are those who are caretakers. They're just interested in the status quo. And I get calls from pastors all the time because they listen to me, search the scriptures in other state. And I told one brother recently, I said, you're a caretaker. You got a maintenance ministry. 
You know, you're burying them and marrying them and visiting them in the hospital, but you're not doing anything new and fresh. You're just a caretaker. And sooner or later, if you're a caretaker long enough, you become an undertaker. That church will die. 50,000 churches are scheduled to close in America. God's people need to go like Barnabas. He says, in essence, we can do this. This is new, but this is the hand of God, and we need to believe God. And so he's a great bridge builder. Fourth, I want you to notice, not only was this good man a bridge builder, Barnabas was a disciple developer. He was a disciple developer. And I say disciple developer because many think today that to make disciples is to do discipleship, and that's just inaccurate biblically. When I was a new Christian, and I love the Navigators, but they put out a best-selling book. It was called Disciples Are Made, Not Born, and so I read it. And as I read it, though I'd only been in the Lord a couple of years, I thought, this isn't right. Disciples are not made. Disciples are made. They said disciples are made, not born. That's not true. Disciples are first born again. And then you develop them. You can call it discipleship. It's not a biblical word, but it's a good word that summarizes teaching them all that I taught you. See, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, put all five expressions of the Great Commission together in the New Testament. It's very clear. It's to make believers. But you see, it's very comfortable. We've got our little Bible study over here, and we just get together as Christians But we're not going to go try to win someone to Jesus. That's too threatening. What happens if they don't like me? You're not doing discipleship if you're not involved in winning people to Christ. You're just developing a bunch of self-centered, egotistical, inward-thinking people. And that's why churches that have this emphasis are wrought with problems because they can't get outside of themselves. God says, as you go, literally, as you go where? As you go everywhere you go, make converts now of all nations, not just to the house of Israel, as he had said earlier, but 400 years ago, we came up with the title Great Commission. I'm expanding it to all nations. Go and make disciples. But you develop those disciples. And so... Barnabas sees this magnificent work of God. Look at verse 25, if you will. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, the Greek word to look is an interesting word. It means to hunt. It means he had to look hard. So he leaves his powerful work in Antioch, and he goes to Tarsus, where Paul is from, and he has to search hard to find him. And we're told in verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, follow carefully how Barnabas reasons. He thinks, my goodness, this is wonderful what God's doing. Um, Look at all these new believers. They need to be taught. They need to be grounded. We need to get some wineskins to put this new wine into. And so he goes and he hunts down Saul there in the city of Tarsus. And he says, I know Saul's the man. He's got the gifts, the abilities. Jesus has called him especially to put an emphasis on the Gentiles. So he says, Brother Saul, let me tell you what's happening in Antioch. You won't believe it. I mean, these raw, hardcore pagans, they're just in great numbers being one to Jesus. 
and they need someone to ground them. I've heard you preach. You have the knowledge of Scripture as a Jew. God has internalized it. He's made it alive in your heart. You've got the gifts. You've got the abilities. You've got the calling. Please come with me to Antioch. And so he goes. And the text says, because he was so great at what he did and God honored his work so much that these new believers were so infused with the Lord Jesus, the text says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, the verb structure is such is they met, they taught. In other words, they're working side by side as apostles. But the growth was so dynamic that these believers were first called Christians. Now, here's a chart just to refresh your memory. As you read through the book of Acts, there are a number of titles that are given for God's people. In Acts 1.15, they're called disciples. In 5.14, they're called believers. In 5.32, they're called witnesses. In 6.3, they're called brothers. Uh, in 9.2, we've already read it, as those belonging to the way. Uh, in 9.13, they're called saints. And then in a pejorative sense, they are described as the sect of the Nazarenes. But this is the first time a few years into the church where they are called Christianos or Christians. And who came up with that name? The pagans. Now, initially, it was a derogatory title, meaning little Christ or imitators of Christ. But it became a name that the Spirit of God will later use positively. Here's an, a positive expression. By the way, the word Christian is found only two times in all the New Testament, here in Acts and one other place in 1 Peter 4.16. And there, Peter, in a positive sense, by the Spirit of God's inspiration, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. To be called a Christian is more than a name tag that you come to church on Sundays. It's more than as traditionally it was used of just being an American. In fact, our English word comes through the Latin in an I-A-N ending means the party of. So these were people of the party of Christ. They were Jesusites. They were Christians, you might say. Now, history indicates, as Josephus records, that the people in Antioch were famous for jeering and calling names. And so they jeer these new believers. Yeah, they're Christians. But they liked the title, and it stuck. Now, in every church, there are people with gifts and abilities that need to use those gifts and abilities. Like Barnabas, they need to find these people, and they need to encourage these people. Like Barnabas came alongside. Remember, Paul still had to grow as a convert. He may have had a lot of scriptural knowledge being a Jew studying under Gamaliel, but he still had to grow in his relationship with the Lord. And so he spent some years in the desert, if you remember. But now he has an opportunity to apply it and to put it into shoe leather. When I was a new Christian just two years, John DeRezzo, who worked there in campus ministry where I was a student at Boston College, said to me, um, Carl, I, I want you to do the teaching at the weekly meeting. And at the time, we had about 35 students. Remember, this is a Roman Catholic institution. Virtually everyone who was involved in the ministry there was converted. At that time, 90% of the students were Roman Catholic, so they were Christianized, but they weren't believers. They believed about Jesus, they just didn't believe in Jesus. And so all these Roman Catholics were coming to Christ. 
I said, John, you, you don't mean me. He said, no, I mean you. He said, I've seen you introduce people to Christ. I've been to a few of your Bible studies. I think God needs to use you. I said, are you absolutely certain you think God wants to use me? He said, listen, Carl, you can do this. I believe God wants to use you. So I stood up there with trembling knees, and I still come with trembling knees. And I saw God bless, and people were coming to Christ, and his people were growing and maturing. And God, through John's leadership, began to confirm that he was calling me into full-time ministry. It just was a confirmation of what God was routing in my heart. And I thought, you know, this is how I need to spend the rest of my life. Well, here's Barnabas, and he's willing to play a second fiddle. He's willing to let Saul of Tarsus, later renamed the Apostle Paul, take leadership in the church in Antioch because he recognizes that God's hand is on this man's life. And think about it, most of us haven't thought much about Barnabas, but because of Barnabas' ministry in Paul's life, nearly half the New Testament, 13 books in the New Testament are written by this fellow. And there's another man that we'll see in a moment whom he also comes alongside of and encourages, and there's a gospel that bears his name. 14 books in the New Testament, through a human point of view, he dealt with two people who were not believed in, and he came alongside and he encouraged them. You say, well, God didn't really need to use Barnabas. He could have used someone else. Yes, he could have. But Barnabas was available, and so he used Barnabas. He reminds me of what Mordecai said to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. In other words, God doesn't need you, Esther. God's going to preserve his people. He's promised to. You can't wipe out the Jewish people. Mordecai knew that. The question is, are you available, Esther? And that's what we need to ask. Are we available? You know, God is sovereign, but He uses people. That's, that's the miracle of the ministry. Before the foundation of the world, God wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You say it was all fixed. No, God is an omniscient God. He knows the beginning from the end. If God couldn't write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, then God wouldn't be God. But God brought a human agent alongside who shared the plan of salvation with you and you believed and were born again. Could God have used someone else? Absolutely. But the question is, are we available? Are we God's instrument that He can use? And I wonder if there are some people here this morning who can sing, who can preach, who can teach, who can serve, maybe our children in some capacity. Or maybe you have the gift of encouragement and you just need to get involved in people's lives and be more pointed. You see, helping the discouraged is being an encourager, but an encourager is someone who's available to the living God. Someone like Barnabas who says, there's Saul, my how God can use him, and he gets involved. Now, fifth and finally, Barnabas was also a failure fixer, a failure fixer. He was a burden bearer, he was a friend finder, he was a bridge builder, he was a disciple developer, but he was a failure fixer. 
Now fast forward a few chapters to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, it's a remarkable chapter for many reasons. It opens with a doctrinal problem dealing with the realm of God's revelation, and the chapter closes with a personal problem dealing in the realm of a relational conflict. And let me just say parenthetically for those few churches that I've witnessed in my lifetime that have gone through a split, it is rarely over a doctrinal issue. It's typically over an interpersonal issue. Now, seldom do you hear people put it that way. Well, the reason our church split is we just couldn't get along with each other. So half of us went over here and half of us went over here. But that's typically what happens. And by the way, if you read the New Testament carefully, you discover that the New Testament was not a perfect church, but it was a progressing church. People say, I want to be a New Testament church. Oh, really? Which one? Like the Corinthians with all their carnality? Like the Galatians with their legalism? It's not a perfect church. It's a growing, progressing church. Look, wherever you have people, you have problems, be it in the first century or the 21st century. Acts 15, verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, that's an interesting clue to the effectiveness of this man's ministry. One aspect of his ministry was personal follow-up. He's not simply interested in decisions. He's interested in disciples developing. Like a good pastor, a good pastor is like an obstetrician. He tries to birth people into the kingdom, but he's also like a pediatrician where he cares for them and nurtures them so they can grow in the faith. By the way, that's why we have the discovery class. And every week when we have meet the pastor and there's new believers, I say, look, in the next room over, we have the discovery class and it's a 45-week course and you can start any week you want and it will ground you in the faith and mature you. And sadly, many who come here sometimes have been Christians even for a few decades, but they've never grown up. They've just stayed baby Christians because they're undertaught and no one's ever worked through the basics with them. But not Paul. Paul's engaged in making sure they develop. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. This is the start of the second missionary journey. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, if you remember from Acts 13 and 14, when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready for the first missionary journey, Barnabas in essence said, hey, Paul, I've got this nephew. His name is John called Mark, and he's a great kid. Man, he loves the Lord. He's passionate about the kingdom. He shares his faith. He's learning the Bible. I think he'll be a great help to us. And Paul says, yeah, bring him along. It'd be great. Love to have him. But in the midst of the missionary journey in Pamphylia, he quits. The text says here, I have an underline, he deserted them. It's a strong word. It means he left them in the lurch in a time of crisis. Now, why did he leave? We don't know. We're not told. Maybe it was the rigors of the journey. You read where they went. I mean, it was some tough terrain. Paul got malaria in one section such that He said, look, if you could have plucked your eyes out and given them to me, you would have. He developed some eye problems. It was not easy. The creature comforts were not there. You know, sometimes when we've taken people on mission trips, we say, hey, look, you need to be prepared. I don't need you to come and whine. I've gone to some places where I've slept on a dirt floor and there's no shower or anything else, and I don't need any wine babies here. I don't know. Maybe he was a crybaby. 
Maybe he was afraid of the robbers. You read what Paul encountered in his first missionary journey in one of his epistles. I mean, they hit some tough, tough people. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was spiritually discovered. Maybe he was, I don't know, backslidden. All we know from Acts 13, 13, you should write that out in the margin, is that he had deserted this missionary team. And so Paul really can't trust him. Barnabas says, come on, let's take John Mark. He says, no, Paul, no, 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 Barnabas, we can't take John Mark. He flushed out on the first missionary journey. The work's too important. We just can't take him. Now look at verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement. And that word disagreement, don't water it down in your thinking. It's even more graphic in the original Greek. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So it went something like this. Paul says to Barnabas, Mark cannot come, Barnabas. We need to leave him here this time. Oh, no, 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 Paul. Paul, Paul, he he needs to come. Barnabas, we're not taking him. Paul, be reasonable. No, we're not taking him. He was a quitter. The work is too important. I can't bring some guy who's going to weigh us down. He was a quitter. Hey, Paul, look, he needs a second chance. Remember, I went all the way. I left the work in Antioch. I went to Tarsus. I found you. I believed in you. I gave you an opportunity to grow and to develop. That's what he needs right now. He just needs to grow some more. Don't use me as an example, Barnabas. The Lord said, if any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not worthy for the work of the kingdom. We're not taking John Mark. And so there were two missionary journeys and two advances in the providence of God for the gospel. And so two good godly men had to agree to disagree. Now, invariably, people will ask me, well, which one was right? Well, without sounding too political, I would say they were both right. And the providence and the sovereignty of God, the Lord had his hand in this discussion because while Paul's primary focus is on the work, Barnabas's primary focus is on the worker. And so God uses one to build up John Mark, to give him a second chance, and he uses Paul on another missionary journey to press forward. And so Barnabas says, come on, John Mark, you got good stuff. You can do it this time. Come with me. Now, right out next to verse 39, 2 Timothy 4.11, 2 Timothy 4.11. As you're writing it, just listen to it. Remember, 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. He's in a dirty, dark, damp prison. He's about to die by beheading. And he says this, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a wonderful statement and commentary on the ministry that Barnabas had in John Mark's life. The one person in all the world that Paul wants here towards the end of his life, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful. The King James says he's profitable. The Net Bible says he's of great help. That's the essence of the word. He's useful to me for service. How did John Mark become useful and profitable to the Apostle Paul for service? It was not a result of Paul's ministry in his life. 
It was a result of the ministry of Barnabas. And when the Spirit of God wants to write a gospel whose theme is the unfailing servanthood of the Messiah, he picks up this failing servant, Mark, and he uses him to write the gospel that bears his name. Barnabas had grace, he had love, he had discernment, and he knew that for him, he needed to take him with him on this separate journey. He believed in him. He saw him as profitable for ministry, and that's why I call him a failure fixer. And we need people like that, people who will move into people's lives who have failed greatly and come alongside and raise up the downtrod. And look, when some of us came to the Lord, we were pretty rough. But somebody cared about us and was willing to build into our lives. And to me, I never get over it. It's the miracle of the ministry that God can just use ordinary, everyday people to make a difference in people's lives. And maybe you're sitting here today and you just feel like you've messed it up so bad. We need some Barnabases to move into those lives, to pick them up, to love them, to care for them. Let me share some applications as we close this morning. Number one, we need to walk worthy of our new name. That's the first timeless principle I learned from this text. We need to walk worthy of our new name. For an entire year, we read, they met the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples there were first called Christians. Those new believers in their first year of life took off on such a growth pattern that more and more they are shaped in the image of Christ that, in, again, in a pejorative sense, they were called Christians. In 1990, I moved from Texas here with my family to South Carolina, and for the first time, I was called a South Carolinian by virtue of the fact that I had taken up residence in South Carolina. When you're born again, you reside in the body of Christ, and so you are a Christian. But the question is, are you living up to your new name? We used to ask years ago if you were brought into a court of law being tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Not only are we to walk in a manner worthy of our new name, secondly, we need to be prepared for new opportunities. We need to be prepared for new opportunities. One of the truths that always blows my mind is that God took these idol-worshiping Gentiles in Antioch and by His grace made them one of the great New Testament churches. They were known as being a center for evangelism, and in a technical sense, they become the first in an official capacity sending church in all the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas come under their wing. They support him financially, and they support him in prayer. And every time Paul came back from a missionary journey, he doesn't report to the church at Jerusalem. He reports to the church in Antioch that had sent him. It's really cool what God can do through one simple local church. Never underestimate what God can do through us corporately or what God can do through you individually. Third, we need to be sensitive to new possibilities. I went into the ministry just shy of 44 years ago, and I've worked with a lot of different people in a lot of different settings. And when I was commissioned that night, I was commissioned with 508 people. And there's only maybe two dozen 
that are still in the ministry. The Center for Christian Leadership did a very extensive survey as to why pastors leave the ministry. You know what the number one reason was? Depression slash discouragement. It's the number one reason they leave. Why is that? Well, we're living in a culture that is in a moral freefall. And I'm talking to young pastors on a regular basis. They say, has it always been this way? And I said, no. It's not that there's new sin, but the magnitude of sin that is sweeping our country that God said would come in the last of the last days is hitting like a tsunami. And it is so widespread that there's just so many that are just discouraged and they don't know what to do. We need some Barnabases that will be burden bearers, friend finders, bridge builders, disciple developers, and failure fixers. Many years ago, I told you about a young boy who, at the age of five, he lost his dad. At 16, he dropped out of high school. At 17, he had already lost two jobs. When he was 18, he got married. At 19, they had their first baby together. At 20, he and his wife had already separated. He tried to make a living being a railroad conductor, but he failed at that. He went into the Army, and then he washed out there. He tried farming, but he seemingly couldn't grow a thing. He tried being an insurance salesman. He just wasn't good at it. And finally, he became a dishwasher and a cook. He convinced his wife to get back together with him, and after a while, he said to him, why don't we open up our own little diner? And they did, and they cooked and washed dishes and spent the majority of their life doing that. At age 65, he retired. He got his first Social Security check for $105, and on the day he got that check, he was so discouraged. And he thought, I've been a failure at everything I've ever done in my life. So he went out in his backyard and began to write a will, and he took a pistol, and he was getting ready to put it to his head. And a neighbor passed by and shouted over the fence, hey, man, we sure miss you down at that diner. No one can cook food the way you cook it. And he stopped, and he paused, and he went down to the local bank, and he borrowed $87 against that $105 check. And he went to the local supermarket and began to buy chicken and boxes and fry it only as he could, and he began to sell it door to door. And yeah, many of you figured it out. Colonel Harlan Sanders, the Kentucky Fried King, one month into that endeavor, he was converted to Jesus Christ. And God blessed him in an incredible way. A man who was willing and wanting to commit suicide, who becomes a multi-millionaire and spokesman for the cause of Christ. Why? Because of one individual who come alongside and said, you know, Harlan, no one can cook food the way you cook it. Now, I'm not interested in selling chicken today. But we need some people who will give and speak a word of encouragement to someone. There's a lot of folks who have just decided because they've lost perspective and they think they're a failure. And someone needs to come and to take the Bible and to speak truth into their lives. And if you feel like you're a failure, you may need a Barnabas today. We got a lot of Pauls running around, brilliant individuals. 
We need some Barnabases. You see, Paul could not have functioned as a great apostle were it not for Barnabas. And John Mark could never have been profitable to the Apostle Paul were it not for Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and of course the ultimate encourager is the God of all encouragement. And you may be listening to me today and you just feel like your life is a mess. Like it's one big failure. God cares about you. Let me tell you how much he cares about you. He saw you as so valuable. His son shed his precious sinless blood as a payment so that you could be forgiven, so that you could become a temple of the Holy Spirit, a new creation, so that the old life could pass away and everything could come new. But you need to call upon him in faith and ask him to save you. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word this morning that we've been exposed to. Thank you for men like Barnabas and John Mark and the Apostle Paul. And you know right where we are this morning. You know what is transpiring in our hearts. There are some who are listening here in one of our campuses, some who are live streaming in another part of the world and they're not even saved. But thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that he received sinful men, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Help someone, Lord Jesus, knowing the payment that was made, the payment that was affirmed through the resurrection, showing the sinlessness of your son. Help someone in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me and change me. And for those who have already crossed that line, help us together to grow and mature, to become all that you've called us to be so that we might be known for encouraging one another and all the more, you said, as the day draws near. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.